This morning I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 20. I want to read one verse in your hearing, verse 15. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 20, one sacred sentence. You shall not steal. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are thieves and criminals and we need your forgiveness and we need your help. Help us to see this command. Help us to understand this command. Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds. Help us to respond in obedience to you. We ask this in the strongest name we know, the Lord Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Over the last couple of months, we have been examining the Ten Commandments in a sermon series entitled First and Ten. The truth of the matter is, we are all lawbreakers, and the church is full of criminals. Now, we might not always think that way, and from the outset of this sermon series, you might have thought to yourself, you know, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, I I probably do a pretty good job. I mean, I probably keep more than I break. I I probably do better than I actually think I do. And as we've been walking through these Ten Commandments, we've had seven of them so far. And the Eighth Commandment is the subject matter of our message this morning. And up to date, you are 0 for 7. And you've got a sneaking suspicion that after today's sermon, you're going to be a whopping 0 for 8. Because we are lawbreakers. We are criminals. Friend, can I please remind you? That every week when I handle the sacred scripture, I am profoundly reminded that I am in need of a savior. I desperately need a savior just like you. You are a lawbreaker and I am a lawbreaker. You are a criminal in the court of Christ and I am a criminal in the court of Christ. When you and I stand on Mount Sinai, we discover that we are in desperate need of a savior on this mountain. Mount Sinai, when we examine these Ten Commandments, everything inside of us longs and yearns for another mountain, Mount Calvary. Because it's there on Mount Calvary that we see the God-man who is the full fulfillment of all ten of these commandments and every stipulation that was ever handed down in the Old Testament. And in Jesus, we find the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. And we stand here on Mount Sinai and we are longing for Mount Calvary. Because as I stand on Mount Sinai, it is this mountain that ruins me. But it is Mount Calvary that redeems me. It is this mountain of Mount Sinai where forgiveness is demanded. It's there on Mount Calvary where forgiveness is demonstrated. It's here where uh, we discover on Mount Sinai that the word was etched in stone. And it's there on Mount Calvary we find that the word was nailed to a cross of wood. So we come to this mountain and we long for another mountain. We stand as a sinner here on Mount Sinai and we long to be saved on Mount Calvary. Because in this moment I am a criminal in need of Christ. I am guilty in need of grace. I am a sinner in need of God's salvation. I come to this commandment just like we've come to all the commandments, and at the end of the day, I have to conclude I'm a lawbreaker in need of the Lord. And when I confess today, you confess today. So we come to this eighth commandment. It's a commandment that's rather simple. You shall not steal. And yet its simplicity reveals its profundity. In this statement, there is no direct object. 
it's almost as if the Lord is saying, don't steal anything. He doesn't tell us what we ought not to steal. He leaves us with no direct object. He just tells us, don't steal. Don't take anything that doesn't belong to you. Now, apparently, being a kleptomaniac is part of being uh, in the family of God. Because you read throughout the Bible, and it would seem that the vast majority of people have a problem with stealing. I mean, all you got to do is go to a place like Genesis 27, and Jacob stole Esau's birthright. Joshua chapter 7, Achan stole the sacred things, the forbidden things from Jericho. You go to a place like uh, John chapter 12, and it's Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, who steals from the money pouch that belonged to Jesus and the other disciples. In Matthew chapter 21, it's the religious people, the money changers, who steal from their own countrymen as they come into worship through the sacrificial system. And the ultimate picture of this, uh, uh, of, of being a robber and a thief, occurs for us in Matthew chapter 27. For there, Jesus is crucified between two thieves, one on his right and the other on his left. You read throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, it would appear that people have a problem with this eighth commandment of do not steal. And as I said earlier, it is a rather simple commandment. Just don't steal. Don't take anything that doesn't belong to you. There is no direct object, so the implication is don't take anything. If the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, is given because God values life, and the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is given because God values marriage by his design, then this eighth commandment, you shall not steal, is given because God values your right for personal property. God values your right to have some stuff. And God values your right to keep the stuff that you have. You ought not to take anything that doesn't belong to you. And you ought not to have somebody else take something that does belong to you. In order to live in a civilized society, we must affirm the value of this eighth commandment. That you shall not steal. Don't take something that doesn't belong to you because you don't want anybody else taking something that doesn't belong to them. So we should not steal one from the other. Yet the reality is, people steal all the time. We are so accustomed, we are so numb to the stories of embezzlement and extortion, of burglary and identity theft, that really it just kind of goes right over our heads. It goes in one ear and out the other. The FBI reports that in America, a burglary happens every 30 seconds. Every 30 seconds, a burglary takes place. At least every 30 seconds, the Eighth Commandment is broken. Somebody takes something that doesn't belong to them. So you come to this Eighth Commandment, and God is pretty simple, pretty straightforward. He says, you should not steal. And yet the reality is that neighbors steal from neighbors, and coworkers steal from coworkers. And grandchildren steal from grandparents. And governments steal from citizens. And companies steal from consumers. And employees steal from their employers. And classmates steal from other classmates. You look around and it would seem that we have a big problem on our hands because we're caught red-handed. Because we break the eighth commandment repeatedly. God says do not steal. And yet... For most of us, there was a time in our life when we probably took something that did not belong to us. This morning, I want to 
try to apply this eighth commandment in three ways. I think that uh, there are three ways in which you and I break this eighth commandment. The first one is pretty simple and pretty straightforward. People steal other people's possessions. That's how you break the eighth commandment. People steal other people's possessions. We take things that really just don't belong to us. And why do people steal? Well, someone may say it's because of poverty. Because they don't have the resources to purchase what they want, they'll just go out and steal what they want. And it could be poverty. It could be just simple greed that prompts people to steal. It could be just the evil in people's hearts that prompts them to steal. But I want to contend this morning that that by and large, most of the time, what prompts individuals to steal something that doesn't belong to them is a lack of contentment. We're not content with what we have. And we feel an overwhelming sense of entitlement that we actually deserve whatever we want, whether we can purchase it ourselves or whether we just take it from somebody. If we want it, we should be able to have it. Why? Because we are an entitled people. We feel entitled to take what doesn't belong to us. Now, in Exodus 22, it is very clear that if you steal your neighbor's sheep, you must pay back fourfold. So if you take your neighbor's sheep, then you've got to give four sheep in return for that one stolen sheep. I don't know how much sheep stealing is going on these days. I don't know how many of you are looking in the pasture of your neighbor and you think in their backyard, you know what, they got an awful nice looking sheep. And I don't have a good looking sheep, I want that sheep. And so you go out and you steal. I don't know how much sheep stealing is going on. But I do know that one way that we break this Eighth Commandment is that we take what doesn't belong to us. People steal other people's possessions. Now, we live in an American culture that it would seem to me almost justifies stealing from the rich. I mean, from our cultural perspective, it's almost justifiable if you take something from a rich person or a rich company, or a rich institution. That if you take something from someone who's wealthy, from the cultural perspective in which we live, it's almost justifiable. Because we pretty much operate under one, two, or three of these statements. Number one, um, you know what? They're not going to miss it. Number two, they don't deserve it. Number three, they unethically obtained it. So because of one, two, or all three of those statements, we think to ourselves, people in our culture think to themselves, listen, it's almost justifiable to steal from the rich. It is this mentality that prompts people to cheat on their income tax. It is this mentality that prompts individuals to fudge on their expense accounts. It is this mentality that prompts individuals to take supplies from their employer. It is this idea that prompts individuals to uh, accept the notion of the rightness of redistribution of wealth. It's the idea that rich people, they don't need it, and they uh, probably don't deserve it. And if you take it from them, they won't miss it. Why? Because they're rich. Now, the reality of this really hit home to me yesterday, and I've got to confess this to you. this, this really hit home to me yesterday. Yesterday, Jane Ellen and I were coming back from Huntsville uh, with Nathan uh, because he had a swim meet in Huntsville. 
And so we're coming on the way back. We're kind of in a hurry. We need to get back at a certain time. And so we were going to go through a drive-thru and get something to eat and drink. Jane Ellen wanted an unsweet tea. So if my baby wants an unsweet tea, she going to get an unsweet tea. So I ordered an unsweet tea. The first tea that came was a sweet tea. That won't do. So we had to send that one back because we need an unsweet tea. Now to get this unsweet tea, we also have to have about eight packs of Splenda because that's the sweetener that my sweet baby likes. So she wanted Splenda, so that's what I was after. But that establishment didn't have any Splenda, so I had to leave and I went to another drive-thru and they didn't have any Splenda either. So now I'm on my third breast and I am convinced that Cracker Barrel has Splenda. I mean, if you've ever been to Cracker Barrel, you know they've got all the sweeteners right there on the table, and they've got to have Splenda. This was the thought that went through my mind. All you got to do is just walk in, go to an empty table, and take some of those Splenda packs. Why? Because they ain't going to miss it. And then all of a sudden, this sermon crashed my spirit. And I thought to myself, I cannot take that Splenda, not now. Because if I take the Splenda, then I can't stand up and preach on Sunday. I mean, I can't talk about do not steal if I go into Cracker Barrel and take some of the Splenda because they're not going to miss it. And if I just take it because they're rich and I need it, I can't stand up and preach about that. So I stood in line. I told you I was in a hurry. I stood in line. And I waited till the little host stood there. And she said, how many's in your party? And I said, there's really nobody in my party. I've got a really strange request. I need eight packs of Splenda. And she looked at me, and she said, you need what? Eight packs of Splenda. That's what I, my wife needs to sweeten her unsweet tea. Needs eight packs of Splenda. She says, don't worry about it. She went back to the back. She brought back about 40 packs of Splenda. She handed it to me. And I said, because I know I'm preaching this sermon, I said, what do I owe you? Because I'm not going to steal a thing. She said, honey, don't you worry about it. And I walked out of Cracker Barrel and said, thank you, Jesus. Now, that's a silly little story, but it's a reality in all of our lives because we justify our actions for various things. It's small. It's insignificant. It's nothing. But the question is, was it yours? Uh, No, not really. No, the Splenda Packs, they, they weren't really mine. So if you take them, what is that called? That's called stealing. So you come to the Eighth Commandment and it says don't take other people's stuff, whoever the other person is. It could be from a rich person, probably a rich person, because you don't steal from poor people, do you? Because they don't have anything. So you steal from the rich. The reality of this uh, also sank into me when I came across this story. There was a second grade teacher who said to her second grade class, if you found a briefcase with a million dollars in it, what would you do? One little boy raised his hand and he said, if it belonged to a poor family, I would give it back. Friends, how many poor families do you know have a briefcase with a million dollars in it? (laughs) See, that reality, the underlying assumption is if it belongs to a poor family, you got to be ethical. But if it belongs to the rich, (laughs) you can take it. Why? Because they won't miss it. They probably don't deserve it and they unethically obtained it. See, this is embedded in our culture and you come to this eighth commandment and whether it's something large or something small something expensive or something inexpensive you come to this eighth commandment and we're indicted as lawbreakers criminals as charged because God says do not steal which means people taking other people's possessions sometimes we break the eighth commandment not only by taking other people's stuff 
Secondly, sometimes we break the Eighth Commandment because people steal other people's reputation. Things can be replaced. It is difficult to replace a damaged reputation in mint condition. How many of us have ever said a few words that really destroyed somebody else's reputation? It was a fit of rage. It was a fit of frustration. Somebody did something against us and we wanted to retaliate. Revengeance is mine, declares God's people. Revenge is what I'm after. I really just want to get even with somebody. So we say something that really causes irreconcilable damage. And we can't repair the reputation. A reputation that took a lifetime to build can be tainted tarnished, even destroyed, with a few ill-advised words of gossip and slander. Oh, but pastor, what if it's true? It's not gossip. If it's true, I'm just dispensing information, and it's up to me to tell other people what I know. Can I just remind you what my mother always reminded me? If you can't say something nice, just don't say anything at all. Because sometimes we can use a few poorly choiced words and we can damage the reputation of a friend, of a coworker, of a boss, of a parent, of a child, of a teammate, of another church member. We can say something, planting in the minds of others seeds of doubt regarding that individual's character. And we can do some tremendous damage We can steal somebody's reputation just with a few choice words. Many centuries ago, there was a woman who was convicted of this. She went to her pastor and she asked him, what must I do to overcome this desire to to really damage somebody's reputation just by the words that I speak? The pastor told her, Go to the market, purchase a chicken, kill it, bring it back to me. Along the way, pluck the feathers, throw them on the ground. She thought to herself, "Uh, Pastor, that's the last thing I thought you were going to ask me to do, but okay, you're the pastor. She went to the marketplace, she bought the chicken, she killed it. She came back to the parish. There, uh, along the way, she plucked the feathers and threw them on the ground. She brought that dead, naked chicken right there to her pastor. What now? pastor looked at her and said, now I want you to retrace your steps and pick up all the feathers. She said, now pastor, I can retrace my steps. I know where I came from, but I can't pick up all the feathers. I threw them to the ground carelessly. They have blown to kingdom come. And he said, such is the case with careless words. You just throw them carelessly along the path of life. And along the way, with those careless words, you just might cut, slice, and dice somebody's reputation. Sometimes you and I, we steal other people's reputation. But it was James, the brother of our Lord, who said, Out of the same mouth come praises and curses. My brothers, this should not be. God gave you a mouth to praise the Lord and lift up others. 
God gave you a mouth to worship Christ and to build up your brothers and sisters in faith and practice. So we ought not to break the eighth commandment by stealing other people's possessions or by stealing other people's reputation. I think there's a third way that you and I can break the eighth commandment and it's simply people stealing from God. How can people steal from God, you ask? The prophet Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, records God in chapter three, verse eight. You are robbing me in your tithes and offerings. The whole nation of you. And then God says, put me to the test. See if I do not fling open the floodgates of heaven and bless your socks off. Now, he didn't really say bless your socks off, but that's what the message implies. See if I do not bless you beyond measure. Bless you beyond what is enough. Test me in this, God says. One of the only times when God invites his people to test him. Most of the time, God says, do not put me to the test, except in this moment, in this scenario, where he says through the prophet Malachi, you are robbing me of tithes and offerings. I have a friend who calls it a sanctimonious stick-up. You are robbing God blind. Why? How? Because you're not giving faithfully of your tithes and your offerings, stealing from the sacred God above. Now, I'll be the first to admit that tithe is an Old Testament, Old Covenant principle. The word tithe means 10%. The implication is it's the first 10%. It's the first fruit offering unto the Lord. Now, the people of old did not give 100% to God physically, but they did give 100% symbolically. By giving the first 10% of their income unto the Lord, they were symbolically saying, God, you're in charge of 100%, so help me spend the 90% in a way that glorifies you. Now, you come to the days of the New Testament, and there is no percentage given when it comes to the generosity of God's people. Now, some have taken that to mean, well, God doesn't want to tithe anymore. I can give less than that. I give him a tip, 2%, 3%, 4% maybe. Uh, maybe God means that, but I don't think so. I think that when you and I step under the new covenant, that the tithe is a baseline. It's, it's a minimum point. And then the offerings are on top of that. Because really the only guardrails that are given in the New Testament regarding your generosity comes in a place like 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 where Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word cheerful is the word hilarious from which we get the English word hilarious. That your giving ought to be so stinking funny that it puts a smile on your face and greater still it puts a smile on God's face. When he sees just how generous you are unto him, he smiles and he laughs. He thinks to himself, listen, I know I've given you everything that you have and here you are giving back to me. Uh, this is great. This is wonderful. And you're giving in a sense, not begrudgingly, not reluctantly, but you're giving cheerfully. You're giving with a smile on your face, not with a, uh, 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 fingers that are grasped and a heart that is clenched, but one that is open unto the Lord. For you understand that there is no way you can outgive God. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians when he asked the question, what do you have that you did not receive? Think about that. What do you have that you did not receive? 
The answer is, I have nothing that I did not receive. Everything I have, I received somehow, some way, either directly from the benevolent hand of God or indirectly from the benevolent hand of God. But everything I have, it's not because I earned it. It's not because I made it. Even though we speak in that language, I make a living, I earn a living. No, we don't make a living. We don't earn a living. We receive uh, the finances that we, we, we receive the things that we have. What do you have that you did not receive? And then the next question in 1 Corinthians is, why do you boast as if you did not? Why do you boast? Why do you strut around thinking to yourself, look at all that I have? Because you know that life is feeble, don't you? It's a mist. That's what James said. Here today, gone tomorrow. And if my life is a mist, finances are probably even mistier, Right? I mean, if my life is a mist, if it is fragile, then finances are even more fragile. And here, sometimes we rob God simply by not giving unto him in a hilarious way, in a trustworthy way. Embedded in the Bible are these two questions. You can find them pretty much under every sacred scripture passage. The first question is, do you trust me? And the second question is, will you obey me? Do you trust me and will you obey me? Specifically about your finances, do you trust God and will you obey him? At the heart of generosity are these two questions. At the heart of every passage are these two implied questions where God asks of you, do you trust me? And will you obey me? It's at this point that I need to commend the generosity of the saints here in this faith family. Over the last 18 months to two years, those who have given have given sacrificially. In March of 2020, we sat around as a staff and we sat around as a finance committee and we asked ourselves what everybody was asking themselves. How are we gonna navigate this global pandemic? What's going to happen? When will the other shoe drop? How are God's people going to respond? Will they continue to be generous? Will they pull back out of necessity? Will some pull back out of fear? What's going to happen? And I can testify today that those who have given have given sacrificially unto the Lord. So that in 2020, we not only met but exceeded our $3 million budget. And so far in 21, we have outpaced our giving as to date in 2020. So we're on pace to exceed the $3 million budget for a second year in a row. To God be the glory. I mean, we ought to just stop and say thank you, Jesus, because I promise you that puts a smile on his face when he sees the hilarious generosity of his people. But let's dig a little deeper and put that in perspective that 85% of what we received came from 20% of our faith family. 85% of what we received came from 20% of our faith family. That tells me there's a lot of room for growth in the other 80% of the faith family because we just might be guilty of a sanctimonious stick-up where we are robbing God of our tithes and offerings. This is one of the only times in Scripture, beloved, where the Lord says to, him, says to his people, test me in this and see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven. Put me to the test, God says, when it, when it comes to your faithful generosity. I can also testify that over the last two years, you have been so generous towards the D&D &D challenge. 
You've heard me say in recent weeks that in this last year, you gave at such a rate we were able to reduce in one single year $1.1 million of debt. That is amazing. It's the first time we've ever eclipsed a $1 million mark in debt reduction in any given year of the last six years. Now, at the same time of reducing debt by 1.1 million, you gave at such a rate, we were able to invest, and that's really what it is, it's an investment, we were able to invest in mission causes to the tune of $604,000. To God be the glory. Now, some of y'all are looking at me with a glassed over look across your face, but this is astounding generosity. And yet, I said a few weeks ago, just in passing, that when it comes to this past year of D&D Challenge and the -the off-the-charts generosity, it did come from 306 giving units, which, by the way, is the lowest total number of giving units any given year over the last six years. In the video, it said that over 450 families have given, and that's a true statement. But over the span of six years, we've had at least 450 families to give. But last year, we had 306 families to give. That doesn't mean that those other individuals are not part of the church. They are part of the church. It doesn't mean that they've left. No, they're still here. It just means that for whatever reason, that some of us, maybe for justifiable reasons, pulled back just a little bit. I I, I tell you this just to motivate you, just to challenge you that the Lord is faithful to his people. God is pressing upon you two questions. Do you trust me and will you obey me? In this season of your life, in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of your personal finances, here in this moment, God is asking, do you trust me and will you obey me? I think there are at least three ways that you and I can break the Eighth Commandment. People can steal other people's stuff. People can steal other people's reputation. And thirdly, people can steal from God Almighty. As I thought about this, I realized that the fulfillment of all of these commandments is found perfectly and solely and completely in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the first commandment, the eighth commandment, the 10th commandment, and all those in between. He is the perfect fulfillment of this righteousness. And when I think about the gospel story, the gospel is a story about a robber being declared righteous, isn't it? I mean, at the heart of the gospel story is this imagery of a robber being declared righteous. Let me give you two examples. The first one comes in Luke chapter 19. The second one comes in Luke chapter 23. In Luke chapter 19, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Jesus is at the top of his game. He's in the midst of his ministry. He's on his way to Jerusalem. All the crowds are gathering around him. Everybody wants to hear what he has to say. And the crowds are frenzied over Jesus. He makes his way into Jericho. And in Jericho, there's a short little man, a wee little man named Zacchaeus. He is a chief tax collector and he's wealthy. And beyond that, he's a shrimp. He's small. He's always been small, but he's always very resourceful. On this day, there were two problems with Zacchaeus getting close to Jesus. One was the size of the crowd and the second was his short stature. 
The crowd was so large, I can well imagine that they had all their Jesus bumper stickers and bandanas. They they probably had their mega hats, you know, make Israel great again. I mean, they probably had all the paraphernalia, really, so everybody could buy all those great things to say how much they loved Jesus. The crowd was large. Zacchaeus was short. That never stopped him before, so on this day, he thought to himself, I'll just run ahead of the pack, I'll climb a sycamore fig tree, and there I'll be, have a bird's eye view of Jesus. And when he comes down Main Street, I'll see him. And when he comes down Main Street, I'll be able to hear him. Jesus came down Main Street. He stopped at the foot of the sycamore fig tree. He looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house today. And I think that in between uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, there's a great conversation that Jesus has with Zacchaeus. Because along the way, I think that Jesus gives him the gospel. Zacchaeus, I want you to know... uh, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and I came uh, for a thief and a robber just like you, and I came to give you my righteousness, and all you got to do is trust me, and all you got to do is turn from your sin, and what Jesus asked of Zacchaeus, he asked of us, do you trust me? Will you obey me? Do you trust that I am who I say I am, and will you obey me and do what I tell you to do? And apparently, Zacchaeus said yes on both counts. The reason I know that is because when you get towards the end of the story, Zacchaeus stands up at his house, presumably after the meal. He says, look, Lord, here and now, I give half my possession to the poor. If I cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. See, Zacchaeus had read Exodus chapter 22. He knew that if he stole his neighbor's sheep in order to pay him back, he had to give fourfold. So I'll give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, which I know I have, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said with a smile on his face, today salvation's come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. This is Luke's purpose statement. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? He is the son of man. He came to seek and to save that which is, that which is lost. Even a robber, even a thief like Zacchaeus. We've said before, but it bears repeating, Zacchaeus was not saved because he gave away a large sum of money. No, he gave away a large sum of money because he was saved. Zacchaeus was caught between greed and grace. And whenever you find yourself caught between greed and grace, one of those two things will win out. It's whichever one you surrender to. If you surrender to greed, greed will win. If you surrender to God's grace, grace will win. On this day in the life of Zacchaeus, grace won out because he was a thief. He was a robber. And yet because of who Jesus was and what he was about to do, he was declared righteous in the sight of God. The gospel at its heart, at its core, is a story of how a robber is declared righteous. Second example comes at the end of the ministry of Jesus, Luke chapter 23. If the first example is at the height of the ministry of Jesus, the second example comes at the depth of his ministry. When he is writhing in pain, he's already stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem. He's already been beaten and bruised beyond all human recognition. He has a cross beam strapped to his back. Those Roman soldiers had punched his face so that he was swollen. His head was bruised and bloody from the crown of thorns. 
And Jesus, as a mangled mass of flesh, made his way through the streets. Somehow, someway, he made his way up that skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. They threw his body like a rag doll on the ground. They stretched his arms to the point of, of separation of the ligaments. And they drove rusty spikes through his wrists and his feet. And Jesus, gasping for air, Jesus, writhing in pain, was hoisted into the air. And it's there that Dr. Luke tells us that he's crucified between two thieves. There's a robber on his right and a robber on his left. The word robber can perhaps better be translated insurrectionist. But regardless, he's a rebel rouser. He's a problem maker. He's a thief. The one on the one side continues to hurl insults at Jesus. Everything the crowd is saying, he starts saying. If you are the son of God, why don't you rescue yourself? And by the way, why don't you rescue us? And he began to hurl insults at this one who was called the son of God. The other thief on the other side of Jesus was still conscious enough to be able to hear what his partner in crime was saying. And he was able to voice a rebuttal. And the rebuttal went something like this. Hey, fool, what are you doing over there? We are being executed Rightfully so. We are getting what our crimes deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. This man in the middle of us, this man between you and me, he is perfect. And then having enough strength and enough faith to lock eyes with Jesus, the other robber simply said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus had enough strength to answer his prayer request and say to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. The gospel is a story of how a robber can be declared righteous. Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Jesus, don't forget me. Jesus, I'm trusting you. Jesus, with every gasping last breath that I have, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to worship you. Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all the commands and all the law and all the prophets, Jesus looks at him and says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, people want to quibble on what the word paradise means. I simply understand it as this. Paradise is wherever Jesus is. That's paradise. And paradise, I understand it as heaven. He is saying to this man, today you'll be with me in heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And by faith, he trusted Jesus. Friend, at the heart of the gospel is the idea of this eighth commandment that all of us break. At the heart of the gospel is this realization that it's only by way of faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, the fulfilling work of the God-man. It is only through Jesus that a robber like you and a robber like me can be declared righteous. Because when we come to faith in Jesus, our sin, our criminal activity is imputed unto Christ. And the righteousness of Christ 
by exchange is then imputed unto us. The word imputed just simply means it is reckoned, it is regarded as belonging to us. Stop and think about that. That when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your sin is reckoned unto Jesus. And the righteous perfection, innocence of Christ is reckoned to you. It's regarded to you as if God the Father looks to see that you have lived out the innocent righteousness of Christ. That's why I say that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these commandments. Jesus is the one that we need. Jesus is the one that we trust. Jesus is the one that we follow. Because positionally, we are declared righteous in Christ. The heart of the gospel is the story of how a robber can be declared righteous. So the hymn writer is exactly right. There is a fountain, and it's filled with blood, and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, and they lose all of their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. And there may I, as vile as he, wash all of my sins away. Friend, the moment you acknowledge you're a lawbreaker in need of the Lord, the moment you acknowledge you're a sinner in need of his salvation, the moment you acknowledge you're a criminal in need of Christ, it is at that moment of faith that you go from unrighteousness to righteousness. And you go from being a thief to being a faithful follower of the Lord. This morning, I'm just calling all the criminals to Christ. This morning, I'm just calling all the lawbreakers to the Lord. Have you ever broken any of these commandments? Have you ever broken the eighth commandment? Have you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? Have you ever taken someone's possession or someone's reputation? Have you ever taken the money that you should have given to God and you spent it in some other way on yourself. Have you ever done that? If you have, you're guilty. You're a criminal. You're a lawbreaker. But I've got good news. Jesus came to perfectly fulfill all of these commands and to give you, even though you're a robber, to give you his righteousness. And you accept it by faith. We are caught red-handed. And yet we're delivered by the blood-stained hands of Christ. Today, express your faith, trust, and dependency upon Christ and him crucified. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Lord, we acknowledge that we are 0 for 8 We do our best, we take a stab, we swing and miss at all these commandments. And we just need Christ. We need you to fulfill the command for us. We need to come to you in faith. So Lord Jesus, we come as robbers and thieves and we ask for you to cleanse us and heal us. Lord, today there may be someone in need of salvation. Today there may be someone in need of prayer. Today there may be someone praying for a family member or a loved one. Today someone may join the church. Today you lead us and we will respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.